Hello and welcome to the podcast for the July issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. I'm Richard Lane and I'm joined by TLID editor John McConnell to discuss some highlights from this month's issue. John, let's start with a topic that seems to have galvanised media headlines around the world in the past few days, and that's echinacea. Yes, that's right, Richard. We've published a meta-analysis of how echinacea can be used for the prevention and treatment of the common cold. Echinacea is a plant, or in fact a collection of nine, nine different related species of plants, which are native to North America. And it's been suspected for, for a long time that echinacea may be useful to help prevent and, and treat colds. Trials have been somewhat contradictory. What the researchers have done here is that they've gathered together all the randomised trials for the use of echinacea to treat and prevent colds that they can find, uh, and they've meta-analysed them. And what they found is that it reduces the chance of somebody uh, catching a cold by about 58%, and the duration of the cold by 1.4 days if you use echinacea in these randomised trials. So, John, what actually are the controversial issues that are around that should be solved, really, by this meta-analysis? Well, of course, what this meta-analysis looks at is how effective echinacea is for preventing and treating colds in very standardised conditions. So, in all these trials, then, the people who've taken, the volunteers who've taken part in them, have received fixed doses of this, this herbal product for a fixed period of time. Now, in the real world, we just go into our health food shops and we pick tubs of this stuff off the shelf. And there really is very little standardization around the dose that we're taking, the duration that we're taking it for, which means that the results of these trials are rather difficult to map onto what actually happens into the real world. And another issue which the authors admit they don't deal with in this meta-analysis is the safety issues. They don't analyze the safety issues at all. So there could well be some issues around the interactions between using economic and if you are using standardised you know, allopathic medicines, there could be some interactions between them, which need to be carefully looked at, but I think before we have a, a definitive set of recommendations on how echinacea should be used. Yes, that's actually really important, isn't it? Particularly the perception is when you have a herbal product like echinacea, there is this perception among the public that it's perfectly safe and just take it as much as you want, as often as you want. And I think there's a quite a well-known journalist in the UK who talks about that. We have noted a blog by uh, a very well-known journalist where he says he's been taking it every day for the last three years to help prevent colds. And that is not the message of this meta-analysis at all. In all the trials that have been analysed, the, the people who have been taking the echinacea have been taking it for a, a fairly short and fixed period of time. They haven't been taking it continually. I don't think from the results of this study that you could recommend that somebody takes echinacea all the time at all. Moving on to another important article you've got in this month's issue, and this concerns scoping or estimating, if you like, the prevalence of HPV, human papillomavirus, in women, but this is with women who are cytologically normal. Uh, HPV obviously is very topical at the moment because two vaccines are being developed. Why do we need to know the prevalence of HPV in cytologically normal women? Well, this is another uh, meta-analysis, Richard, that uh, has collected together all the studies on uh, worldwide long prevalence of HPV in normal women over period of about 10 years. Now, of course, it's very important before you start using a vaccine on a routine basis, it's very important to know what the prevalence is in the population who you're going to apply the vaccine to. And it's also very important to know what the picture is worldwide, because, of course, there will only be some richer parts of the world which are able to afford these vaccines, which are really quite expensive. So, for example, we see that the overall prevalence worldwide of HPV in uh, normal women is about 10%, but the the range is is quite huge. So, for example, in in Africa, it's up to 22%, whereas in Europe and Asia, it's it's only around 8%. So, as with many infectious diseases, things are, are far worse in the poorer parts of the world. 
And these will be the parts of the world which are least able to afford a vaccine. Another thing which I find striking from this study is that there are whole vast geographical areas for which the uh, authors of this meta-analysis could, could find no data. So, for example, there are no studies that which they managed to find from central West Africa. There's nothing from the Middle East. And extraordinarily, there's, there's nothing from Australia and New Zealand. So it also highlights the fact that we need to do some sort of pretty baseline studies for large chunks of the world before we can even start using vaccines. Indeed, it does seem extraordinary, nothing from Australasia. It, it, it does, but they did look very hard. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Thanks, John. And finally, let's just touch briefly on your leading edge editorial this month. This concerns the G8 meeting, and you think there are grounds for limited optimism. Well, I, I do think so. It, it's interesting how the, the G8 process is reported, both in the lay press and in the medical press as well. As It's, it's characterised quite often as, as being largely a failure, but we've tried to look a little bit deeper into whether... The, the research which has been done on the G8 process throws up um, energy interesting facts on how useful it is. So there is, um, we've, we've found that there is an organization called the G8 Research Group, which is based in Toronto, but it actually operates in a number of institutions worldwide. And what they've done is that they've examined the various commitments that come out of the G8 meetings. So these commitments, for example, and these are commitments to meet specific targets, they've snowballed from just 14 at the very first G8 meeting, which was in, in France in 75, to um, 300. 17 at the uh, St. Petersburg G8 meeting. So what the G8 research group have done is that they've looked at the commitments that come out of these meetings and then a year later, immediately before the next meeting, they've scored the actual performance of countries and the G8 group as a whole against the commitments which they make at the previous meeting. So the scores range from 100%, which is complete compliance with what the uh, G8 countries agreed to do, down to minus 100%, which is non-compliance or doing precisely the opposite of, of what they committed to do. So, for example, a score of 0% means that it's it's work in progress, but the target hasn't been achieved uh, within the one, the one year time frame, which the research group is looking at. So, for example, after the Glenagles meeting, which was in 2005, 2005 mm. yes, that's right, then um, overall compliance across all priority areas was 65%, so a fairly good score, actually. However, after the St. Petersburg meeting, which was last year, then that fell to 47%. Now, they've also, the G8 research group also scores individual countries' performance. So at the top of the tree, we see about 60% for uh, Canada, the UK, and uh, the USA after the St. Petersburg meeting, down to an utterly shameful 5% for, for Italy, who really have not got their act together on, uh, on, on their G8 commitments at all. And you can also drill down and look at the specific commitments against various infectious diseases targets. So the, um, the G8 research group score after St. Petersburg for targets related to commitments related to infectious diseases was about 41%. So, you know, reasonable progress according to this independent group against what the G8 has actually committed itself to do. So... Our conclusion really is that the, the, the G8 process is, uh, is slow and painful, as are many political processes, but the, the rational evidence is that they do actually, it does actually have some effect, and therefore we should, it's, it's not hopeless, and we should continue to support it, and there is some measure of optimism going forward that the G8 process will bear fruit. That's an interesting analysis. Thank you very much, John. And those were the highlights from the 